Hey everyone, we're back with a upgraded King of Cups. We haven't watched it, of course, um, but everyone who's watching it will see that King, King of Cups not only has a, a YouTube channel, but also has a new look, a new branding identity, um, and is very, very apropos for us to have the guest of Mario Symbolic Studies here for the first episode with this branding because he just seen all his amazing graphic design work that he does for his own personal stuff has kind of reignited my my intrigue into graphic design and that and working with um stuff creatively with alan on the spiders so that's exciting but also our discussion today will be over film and how lovecraft has influenced modern cinema which is very intriguing for me because looking back at a lot of the stuff i grew up on i realized that there's this lovecraftian influence on it whether it was curse the cowardly dog or the grim adventures of billy and mandy um with those cartoons or even the movies i would watch when i got a slightly older like your del toros and all that there's there's definitely um um a really big impact that he had so i'm very excited to get into this conversation with mario i know he has done some amazing work um over lovecraft and everything so i'm excited to hear what he has to say welcome mario Thanks, man. I appreciate the invite. And uh, regarding your rebrand and stuff, I'm a fan of your artwork, dude. I think you've got a really good eye, honestly. And uh, I've seen a lot of your videos from Spiders that have like kind of blown my mind and really got me into some sort of trance or whatever. And so that was the first stuff I was exposed to with you. But then following, you know, you on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that, like a lot of the things that you put together, I don't know if a lot of this stuff is like on the fly and it's quick or it takes a long time or whatever, but I just, I like your aesthetic. I, th I like your aesthetic choices and everything else. So I'm always happy to see you put out your artwork and everything else and all of that. So the King of Cups rebrand, I'm a fan of it from what I've seen. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been kind of, I've been teasing it the last few days, trying to be like, hey, guys, look out. There's going to be new stuff coming. But yeah. Um, so to start the conversation off, I thought I would ask you what is your connection to lovecraft where did you first hear him how has it has it impacted you creatively or any part of your life really yeah sure no awesome question um i first heard of lovecraft probably in junior high or high school and so i'm 38 now so it was a, a little while ago uh, but I had a friend who was really interested in Lovecraft, and he even named one of his bands after a Lovecraftian deity. The band's name was uh, Azathoth. And so, um, you know, it's a metal band. And so that's totally a thing that you'll find in the metal universe, too, is that there's Lovecraftian 
um, you know, artwork. I've seen very clear inspired, you know, album covers that are like based off of one of his deities or stories or something like that. I've heard album titles that are very Lovecraftian, very direct to, you know, directly inspired by Lovecraft. And so it's kind of always been around because I'm a metal guy and I used to go to a lot of shows and stuff like that, but I never really got into him. It wasn't until I was, you know, way more interested in magic and occultism and things like that. Did I realize that his, his work influenced that world as well. And so at some point, a handful of years ago, I learned that there are Lovecraftian occult groups there is a Lovecraftian uh, way of performing magic. And this is like a whole entire subculture. And then also, I'll just say, too, that uh, I lived in Portland, Oregon for a number of years. And that's the home of the Lovecraft Film Festival. And so um, they used to have an annual festival of Lovecraftian films. And so all of the goth kids and stuff would come out of the woodwork and uh, go to this festival. I actually never went because I was never that interested in in some of these films i guess i've never been like a camp horror guy you know i want to be truly frightened I, I don't like the campy sort of stuff and some of that stuff definitely you know kind of fits that sort of bill i guess you can say and that's never been so much my thing but also portland oregon used to have a bar called lovecraft bar and so it was all lovecraftian theme as well and it was more of like a gothic nightclub sort of thing and so it's kind of been around when I moved to Portland as well. And um, at a certain point, I realized that I needed to do my research with Lovecraft and mostly just wrap my head around his influence, you know, because I kind of knew over the years as well, right, that he's influenced cinema. He influenced, um, you know, video games. There's a lot of Lovecraftian video games. Um, there's like Lovecraftian anime you know, and so it's like this whole philosophical sort of thing. And um, I was really, really intrigued with the fact that with uh, Lovecraftian magic, that there's a thing, there's a correspondence with his deities and some of like the Sumerian gods and uh, other pantheons. And so I kind of realized that what he was doing is he kind of created a new pantheon for like modern sensibilities, I would say. And so um, when I found out that there were like Lovecraftian things, you know, within his poetry and, and short stories and stuff like that, that alluded to like a North Star, Northern Sky sort of thing, um, I was all in. I was like, I need to know more about what's going on here. And so I read a few books about Lovecraft and everything else and, uh, you know, basically wanted to learn as much as I could about his influence on magic and then also some of the names of uh of occultists that wrote about um you know their magical workings and how they've integrated lovecraft into their stuff so my sort of angle with lovecraft has from the beginning i, th I think when i started taking it more seriously has always been about me trying to fill in the gaps with uh you know occult sort of history and things like that so that's kind of my in and then when I did that, I started realizing that he's had all these other influences, too, that are definitely, you know, really prevalent in today's world and all of that. So uh, for a few different reasons, I felt like I needed to do my research on him and everything else. And part of my research, honestly, was reading some of his work. And uh, just to be completely honest, there's some stuff that resonated and other stuff that didn't quite resonate. So 
on one level, you know, I'm not really a fan, but I respect him greatly. And I respect his kind of sphere of influence, you know, quite a bit. But I can't say like I'm a Lovecraft fanboy or anything else. But I'm still very, very curious, you know, um, just to learn more about him and, and things like that. So that's pretty much like the gist of it, I guess. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was hesitant looking at Lovecraft because of, I, I like, I can get um, into, and I'm intrigued by dark things, but some of the, the type of people who kind of reign with Lovecraft's work um, kind of took it in, you know, their own kind of direction where they mm. kind of really focused on the the the, the darker more um uh, more the more um brutal mm. mm-hmm. parts of of his his whole um mythology and you know that can't get into like the whole like horror movies are inspired by his stuff they really focus in on that and so i was kind of like um maybe it's it's not for me but then hearing you talk about it and trust with your northern symbolism work i was like yeah i gotta get more into this i um my first i guess realization that i enjoy the Lovecraft's uh, work was, as I mentioned earlier, was probably through um, Del Toro mm. because he uh, he has talked about Lovecraft a lot and you can see it in a lot in just watching his films. And I would, I always loved the whole, um, the deeper resonance to what what del toro would would be showing and a lot of that came from his um mysticism that he practiced he i think he called if i remember correctly he calls himself a a mexican syncretist and he one of the things he incorporates into his mysticism of his occult knowledge and his whole outlook that he puts in his movies of course is Lovecraft and so that really intrigued me that you know he, Lovecraft has kind of cur- created these entities these this pantheon the, this working through his own imagination but it's also like it's still a tangible thing that people can work with. And I think that's really interesting to show how our connection with the imaginal realm mm. kind of works, um, which makes me think of um, the the last Lovecraft movie I watched, which is From Beyond. And that's from... Um, 
use now the same director of another Lovecraft film, um, The Reanimator. Oh, okay. And both these are uh, a bit more of of that campiness to it, which which is interesting. But they 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 both um, have to deal with um, like other senses, and in the case of From Beyond, and like inner brain and the mind and what is the mind kind of thinking and with from beyond you you have some very interesting symbolism of like the the machine that um expands the pineal gland being tuning forks and how that lets you see the the entities that are all around and you have this idea of like this overlaying frequency of entities and you you see that a lot in this like cosmic horror idea of like almost like fish floating around like mm. ethereal fish and that's kind of what Lovecraft's whole, you know, aesthetic was, was this, like, underwater type of oceanic creatures. Yeah. Was kind of how he depicted his entities. And it, it makes me think of, like, the Electric Universe Cosmic Egg stuff. Um and how an egg you know has the yolk you know we you think of the whole maritime law linguistic mm. stuff and the the birth of the ship and us being born and it's always in water mm-hmm. and so you have this um this parallel between being surrounded in water and like our bodies are water and lovecraft is kind of saying like hey these these deities they they swim in in this liquid in this energetic liquid that's all around and it's in a different you know realm and i think that's that's so interesting and again i think of like the electric universe cosmic egg like if that is the case, I believe it is, and that would make sense that it, there is some type of watery, you know, substance with that. Mm-hmm. And that watery substance could be uh, this energetic uh, sludge that hosts all kinds of different entities. And so with that being said what what do you think it is with lovecraft and everything kind of being like underwater like Mm. cthulhu being like you know tentacles and all that like there is there's something to that and that's something that i haven't really heard people discuss like why is kind of why was 
why is that the aesthetic i guess you could say that he uses right it's a great question um you know the first word that comes kind of comes to mind is primordial you know there's this primordial sort of thing with water right and even um you're just kind of reminding me of the idea i've made some videos about this but that um i have like lots of good reason to believe that there's a lot of older cultures that their adversarial figure you know most people when they think about the devil today they think of fire and brimstone and they think of it dwelling underneath the earth right but um i think that there's a lot to be said about older cultures having an understanding that their adversarial figure actually wasn't under earth but it was underwater and so this idea of an older sort of devil i guess you can say dwelling underneath the water in the ocean right and so this is really interesting even too because there's correspondences for this there's like remnants or this uh for this there's like artifacts to suggest all of this so you look at the devil card in the tarot the devil card corresponds with uh capricorn the sea goat right and so here you have this sea goat it's an earth sign but uh, there's this watery connotation with it um it's half fish half goat and that corresponds with the devil you also have a lot of oceanic deities that have tridents and then the devil has his pitchfork right which is basically a trident sort of thing and so i think it kind of goes back to that and it speaks to the fact that you know just like what you're saying it's like we come from water we return from water even uh in the crowley deck the death card death is at the bottom of the ocean you know, so when we are birthed, our mother's uh, water breaks. And I kind of have a hunch that when we die, the water also breaks symbolically. So we return back to the water, right? And there's this as above, so below kind of correspondence with water. So it truly is, you know, all around us. And it's really, really important. And so um, also, though, we are land dwelling creatures. We walk upright, we breathe air, etc., so we are vulnerable in the water, you know, it kind of reminds me uh, when I used to play, you know, video games and uh, a lot of the underwater um, levels were really terrifying because you're so vulnerable. And so you may not be able to move the same way you moved on Earth. Right. So um, when you're underwater, there's a vulnerability that kind of comes with that because um we are like i said we live on the land we can swim but you know we can't be underneath the water for too too long right and so i think there's something to be said about all of that also the other thing you're reminding me of too is um the fact that sci-fi gets connected with a lot of lovecraftian um films so there's a lot of lovecraftian films where it's cosmic horror but there's a sci-fi sort of spin to it right um event horizon i'm not sure if you've seen that one but some people consider that to be a Lovecraftian influenced film. Um, Alien is another example that some people consider that to be a Lovecraftian film. And actually, uh, the main guy who created like uh, the alien sort of look and everything, like the design of the alien is H.R. Giger. And H.R. Giger, one of his art books is called the Necronomicon, which I actually have back here somewhere. So he was directly influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, and he created all of these weird biomechanical, you know, uh, creations and stuff. They use that for Alien, and they have those eggs too, right, in Alien. And so uh, you were talking about egg symbolism earlier. And so, um, but when you're talking about sci-fi, just like what you're saying, it's like in order to traverse the cosmos 
through the lens of cinema, you have to get on a ship generally, and then you're going to go to different star systems or planets or whatever. But if you notice a lot of like um, science fiction, it's very watery, you know? So uh, as an example, when you're in the water, you float, right? If you're going to do a dive um, and you're going to explore the, uh, the bottom of the ocean, you're going to put on a suit and then you're going to have like a cord hooked up to the ship or the submarine or whatever. And it's like the same exact idea with sci-fi and you go to outer space and then you're in outer space and then you're floating and you're in a ship. Right. And then you're hooked up. You have a lifeline, you know, to your ship and everything else. So I think when you see a lot of science fiction stuff, um, there's a like direct correspondence and an overlapping thing with water and water symbolism and things like that. And then also how dreamlike, you know, uh, a lot of science fiction films get. They get very, you know, uh, there's this kind of like um, idea that if you're in space for too long, you're going to go mad, you know. And so Ren and Stimpy, there's an episode called Space Madness, I think. And they kind of explore this whole entire idea. You know, this is kind of explored in like 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's explored in a bunch of other movies too, right? Science fiction movies. And so I think, you know, for all of those reasons and more, you know, that we can unpack, I think that uh, the watery thing, it just, it makes a lot of sense. I think that water might be, you know, the oldest element. This is kind of like a debate on like which element came first. Was it air? Was it fire? Was it earth? And from, you know, my research and even just intuitively, it would make a lot of sense that water maybe was the first element actually. And there's a lot of magical stuff going on with water. And I think because water relates to our emotions too, we're very emotional creatures. I think we kind of filter most things through our emotional body first. And so given all of that, if you can kind of turn some of that watery symbolism on its head, um, that would be really terrifying. There's a lot of terrifying aspects to water and uh, the ocean and the vastness of the ocean, which is kind of symbolically you know, similar to like the vastness of space, which is, you know, one of the things that's explored in, uh, you know, a lot of Lovecraftian films and everything else. So those are some of the things just off the top of my head that I think about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. And also you're talking about like space madness, the same thing happens in like shipwreck movies, right? When they're oh, yeah. stranded in the middle of the ocean. Totally. They go mad, and then, you know, you have Tom Cruise talking to a volleyball <laughs> type of yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. And then that, that makes me think of how, and this is a bit of a, a bit of a side thing, I just think yeah. I thought of um, Tony Stark in um, Iron Man in Endgame. You know, he's stranded out in the in space and at the very beginning and he is recording his last thoughts to his helmet which is kind of like tom cruise talking to that volleyball i don't mm. know if there's much of a weave there i just realized there's an interesting parallel absolutely dude um well i'll just say that one of my notes here for this conversation is uh aliens and alienation as in like isolation, right? As in like um, being alone or being uh, experiencing some sort of abandonment, which I think there's a parallel with that and being uh, cosmically abandoned, 
and they're not being a god or not being you know um kind of uh, a spiritual sort of essence to this reality and that's lovecraft was very much like a materialist atheist sort of guy in fact i think he really loathed kind of spirituality and things like that and that was kind of part of his philosophy um so anyway so the things you're mentioning though um has to do with this isolation and um and you know having like an existential sort of crisis and all of that and so that's very much part of his whole entire weave feeling alone and so the couple of films that i watched to kind of prep for this conversation um definitely explored that and a lot of horror movies kind of explore that where you just feel like this cosmic dread of um of isolation almost and that there's no one out there to help you in fact uh there's horrific monsters out there that exist and they're completely indifferent <laughs> to you so um you know there's all of that so yeah talking to the volleyball you know you being alone uh the space madness thing exactly it's like you're far from home you know and you're one of maybe you know it's a small crew or you might just be by yourself or whatever you know that that's a terrifying predicament and to not know what's going to happen or to kind of like be doing this in unexplored territory uh would obviously be really really scary yeah and um you also have like i i've, I've noticed talking with um you know i'm i'm only 25 and talking to people my age and slightly younger, slightly older, and there's this very big trend in the in in the culture of the generational zeitgeist in the in my group of that existential crisis dread, or they're very pessimistic, um, and they're very focused on this idea of what you're talking about of like being alone and you know just being just being a speck on in the endless void there's like exactly. this very gothic mindset that's kind of taken over mm -hmm. and so that kind of gets me to my next question is before we get into specific films since they're talking generally at the moment what do you think has uh, with films in the last you know few decades being inspired by Lovecraft, how has that impacted the cultural zeitgeist of mm. the way people think? Right. That's a really good question. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I think just to kind of lay a groundwork to answer your question, um, when I was having a conversation with my friend recently, I told him I was going to be doing the show and he started riffing on what he thinks Lovecraft was about. And uh, he brought up some really excellent points um, that I kind of was thinking about, but the way he just kind of very concisely packaged it for me was really helpful. But one of the things he mentioned was just this idea that um, when Lovecraft's work was coming out, and then as his sort of like star was rising, even, you know, um, after his death and everything else, a lot more people were living in cities. And so we're moving towards like industrialization and we're moving towards people living in a um, more dense area, 
living in the city, not being as connected to nature, perhaps, you know, and living in a city um, comes with a certain kind of lifestyle, right? One of the things that just has to be acknowledged, especially if you live in a huge city like New York City or something, there is people everywhere. There's just you, you you can't avoid it. So you're literally stacked on top of each other, you know, in these cities and stuff. And so there is something to be said about living in a city and being surrounded by people. And this has been explored in a number of films and books and things like that. But this idea that there are so many people around me, yet I feel isolated. I feel alone, you know. And so it's a double-edged sword sort of thing. On one hand, there's lots of people around. So there's lots of opportunities to, to get to know people or different social circles. Maybe you could tap into or whatever. But on the other hand, um, that sort of uh, dynamic can flip on its head. And actually, you might feel more lonely than ever, you know, because you um, you're surrounded by so many people. You know, you might have hundreds of people living in your building, but you don't even know your neighbor. You maybe never even met them, but you've lived next to them and you have a common wall. <laughs> you know, you just have one wall separating you and your neighbor and you've lived next to each other for years. And yet, you know, absolutely nothing about them. And so obviously the city life, it's fast paced. You have to go from here to there all the time and you don't have time to waste on getting to know people or uh, helping people out or whatever. It's very much kind of like um, this thing. It's more rat racy, I would say that way. And again, because you're not, in nature and you're not um, basically spending time out in the wild or just whatever you're you, it's hard to even be alone with your thoughts in the city too because it's so loud and there's just so many things happening and that uh, you might be really busy trying to keep up with all of the things you might be interested in i've heard that that's a big common thing with people who live to uh, live in a big metropolitan area like that is this uh, like fear of missing out you know, because there's always shows, there's always openings, there's always whatever, all of these different sort of things that you can kind of, um, you know, uh, do spend your time doing yet all of those things, you're going to avoid self that way. You know, you can really live in a city and completely distract yourself from doing any kind of personal work or personal development. So if you're just concerned with all that stuff, of course, you're going to feel lonely. You, you're, you're not even comfortable with yourself. You know, you're not comfortable just spending time alone and understanding who you are or whatever. And that's one of the benefits of living out more remotely, I would say, or at least making the time to, to uh, spend alone by yourself, maybe out in nature, you know, you can reflect and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I think that plays a part in it. So now in kind of like, um, the modern world with technology, you know, we have social media, right? That's like the sort of like a medium of the day, I would say, in so many different ways. Um, and we have these opportunities to connect, but how many times do we hear that actually it's more alienating and it's more isolating than, than anything else? And you're comparing yourself to other people and um, all this kind of stuff. So to me, it's almost like the uh, Lovecraftian thing how maybe it appealed to people who have more uh, city dwelling sensibilities. I think that that same philosophy perhaps maybe also appeals to people who, um, you know, live a significant amount of their time, you know, online. And therefore they might come across a lot of content and a lot of media and they might have a lot of friends online, but in actuality, we all know that perhaps, you know, um, 
this is also causing a lot of people to feel very, very lonely. And so I think that this also too, social media and everything else, it's one of those double-edged swords. We're able to connect, we're able to chat and have this discussion. And I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. Um, you know, but I know that there's a lot of people where it's actually backfiring on them, where they're feeling more, more alienated and isolated than ever. So I think maybe that could be part of the thing. Um, but those are just some of my first thoughts on that. Yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. And the, what, something that I skipped over earlier was you, you're talking about um, like the face huggers from Alien and actually in From Beyond, uh, the some of the entities that are swimming around us all the time are that same design of the face huggers um oh but they're, but they're also sw swimming around with like these entities that look like jellyfish mm. and so i i'm wondering if um if that is another hint at comparing um you know underwater and space, the ocean mm. space, if that is kind of another link that sh kind of shows that alien and the whole the whole space thing it has that connection, um, just by sure. using a similar design but showing it move differently in a di different atmosphere, oh. um, and. Yeah, uh, the whole uh, abandonment in bigger cities thing. I actually just watched, um, I went with my family to see Scream 6. And that's the entire um, point of the of the new Scream. Is wow. They're not in the small town of Worcestershire anymore. They're in New York City. And so, and the whole tagline was like, even in the city, no one can hear you scream. Like it was like <laughs> like a very like like it's it was taking away during, during Halloween and everyone's wearing a ghost face mask so they can't tell which one's the real killer and which which one's just a festive person. Yeah, exactly. So, they, they, so it's a very um big thing in our present society. So I, I think you're right. Um the first person um since we I they kind of bring him up earlier. I think I think we could talk about. I also know you're a fan of his as well. Is Del Toro? Mm. Um, so, in Del Toro's work, he he also does the underwater thing. Of course, he has the shape of water, um, which is just a, a retelling of the creature from um, the Black Lagoon. Mm -hmm um type of thing and the, then you also have hellboy and there's a lot of even in just hellboy's comics which i'm a novice that i'm i never go too deep into um the the source material of that but especially the way the toro shows it is very you could you could say Lovecraftian, mm -hmm. and he, he even have had um, 
the different because I know in, in Lovecraft you have like kind of like different realms, different spaces. Um, yeah. and in Hellboy that was kind of the same thing, and you even had that creature in Hellboy. Um, when oh, the, yeah. the portal opened up, and so it it, it seems like that um that could be and, and that's an interesting thing because that was you know it's marketed as like a superhero comic like hellboy is like a superhero he's he, he says it and it's a comic and so you have a lot of younger people digesting these ideas as well mm-hmm. um i and the and in Del Toro's latest film, um, which I've talked about on on this channel before, Pinocchio, when Pinocchio goes to the underworld, it's all blue. Oh, so that's could it be underwater? Like the whole color scheme of the underworld was blue and black. Um, so with your your interest in Del Toro and his his movies. What is what is something that you notice with this his um, the, his take on Lovecraftian mythos? Right, right, yeah, um, that's a good question because I know he makes. Um like he publicly has referenced Lovecraft as being a huge influence. It's really interesting to me actually to see what work is associated with being Lovecraftian, because as an example, I don't think I would have um, necessarily said that Hellboy is a Lovecraftian film from the Hellboys that I've seen at least, you know, but now that somebody points it out, I guess I can kind of see, you know, where he's getting at with all of that um, and, and why that would be, you know, uh, a clear influence or what have you. Um, you know, I would say for me personally, the, uh, Del Toro film that I'm like easily the biggest fan of and the most familiar with is a pan's labyrinth, you know? And I think that it's just, it's an incredible movie. It's actually, I would say it's probably one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. And actually, even after, um, researching more about occultism and all that kind of stuff, uh, when I revisited Pan's Labyrinth, it was even better. I was like, whoa. I mean, there is just like so many layers here of uh, of information and just things to decode. And it's like, it's kind of like a perfect film, in my opinion, honestly, in so many different ways. Um, but as far as like the Lovecraftian influence, you know, um, I think that a, probably a lot of it has to do kind of like what you're saying of these like different spaces, you know, or these different realms or whatever. He definitely plays around with that in Pan's Labyrinth for sure. Um, I think just kind of like the mysteriousness of everything, obviously um, that's kind of a component. Um, But I would have to, honestly, I I think that I would almost have to revisit his kind of filmography and look at it through this lens to give you a better answer. Um, What would you say of all of his projects? Because even um, what's the underwater one where the woman falls in love with that creature? You just mentioned Uh, the shape of water. The Shape of Water. I saw The Shape of Water, and I think that was nominated or received like Best Picture or whatever. Um, 
I personally, I, I didn't really care for that one that much, but the Lovecraftian kind of influence um, is, is present, I would say, in a few different ways, which just reminds me, just because we're on the topic real quick, um, I mentioned earlier that the adversarial figure maybe was underwater instead of being underground. The same is also true for some of these um, teacher deities, for these teachers that kind of like come on land and then bestow wisdom upon humanity and things like that. That there's like a whole tradition of like fish gods, half fish, half human gods coming from the depths of the ocean to teach people something. And then they return back to the ocean, you know, but that the, the, uh, that the wise ones of old potentially came, you know, from the sea. And um, there's different illustrations that I've been looking at recently of these fish deities, like saying hi, you know, coming out of the ocean, saying hi to like primitive man, uh, you know, men and women having spears in their hands and stuff and wearing like fur clothing and, and whatever. Um, there's an illustration in the secret teachings of all ages that I think about. And when I saw this recently, I was like, okay, so this fish deity coming on land to teach people things. Um, I'm like, man, I was like, there's something about it that made me think of Cthulhu. Because if you look at Cthulhu artwork, most of the times he's coming out of the ocean, you know, and it's like stormy and there might be lightning and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, is Cthulhu just like an updated interpretation of the same mythology for modern sensibilities and obviously it's way more kind of atheistic and, and materialist kind of in nature sort of thing um and so anyway so when i think of these fish gods fish uh half fish half human hybrids and stuff like that i'm like is cthulhu kind of fulfilling a similar sort of role you know uh there's similar themes that i kind of think about when i think about that um, but what, what movie do you think is most Lovecraftian out of Del Toro's work? Uh, most Lovecraftian that that's an interesting question. Um, I know he, well, he, he did one, um, it was one of his. So he he has what he calls his um, trilogy of of movies that have kind of this uh, ongoing theme, mm. and that consists of um, Pinocchio is is the last one in the trilogy. The middle one is Pan's Labyrinth, and the first mm. one was one of his earliest films called The Devil's Backbone. Ah. Um, and that one has, I, I hadn't seen it actually. And I, I had recently just watched it and there was so much, uh, um, just like all his friends, so much, um, occult influences in that, um, movie in particular. And I there's not like one thing in that movie that I can see from what I know that's like Lovecraftian, but the overall um, message of the movie seemed very in line with something that you would read in a Lovecraft story. Um, totally. So I, I, I could possibly put it towards that one. Um, 
it's it's hard to say because the thing with um dotoro is he's very atmospheric he has these teachings but he he also has cultivated a atmosphere a world and Mm -hmm. which that is you know that's like looking into a, a window view of someone's imagination like what what is their connection with the imaginal realm? And you look into it and, you, you know, you'll see. And it seems like Del Toro is, is very, very similar. In, imagination would be something looking very similar to Lovecraft's mm-hmm. um, imagination. And that, I, I didn't say this earlier, but I'll say it now, the whole idea of, of water is interesting to me because um you know i have cerebral palsy and cerebral palsy is caused by a water pocket in the brain oh is that right there's um it's a a excess amount of of water um and i i've i've always pictured it as like a round like a, a round pull of water like a round patch i don't know why um and once i started looking into more um mysticism and things like that um i always you know think of like the scrying mirrors and like the fairy portals how it's like a, a, a mirror sheet of glass with water it's kind of what I envision the water, a, a water pocket would would look like. Mm. So I've always thought maybe having that has kind of launched because I've always had a deep connection with the imaginal realm, and that's why I've I've ta- it, it's um, talked about a lot in a lot of the things I discussed, and I'm. I'm wondering if that has anything to do with my connection to it. Like, did, uh, does having this access, I don't think I'm, I'm Scarlett Johansson in the film Lucy or any pain, <laughs> but I'm wondering if that has something to do with me having this very um, deep-rooted um, connection with the imaginal and all the experiences I've had in my life. Sure. I can um, totally see that, dude. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So, um, going on from from there, is there is there any director when you you was looking at um, Lovecraft movies that um, you might have thought it was like the best direct like that told the best Lovecraft story in in film in in your opinion that's a great question um that's a really good question because I wrote down the movies that I um had seen that have that appear on all these lists um real quick though just want to say that one of the things with Lovecraft too and uh this is like total recency bias but last night we watched um in the mouth of madness have you seen that one by chance um not yet it's it's on my list yeah and so 
of all the movies I had not seen, for some reason that one kind of resonated. And it's about a uh, horror writer um, who's very Lovecraftian in so many different ways, different too, but you could tell that this is kind of like an homage, I think, in, in certain ways to Lovecraft. Um, but they literally, there's a conversation about fantasy meeting reality and that a lot of people who read the books, they end up going mad, which is kind of like a Lovecraftian sort of thing, right? Uh, people going mad. And I didn't say this earlier too, but one of the things with alienation and isolation is that um, oftentimes these storylines are like, you are in a, um, you know, you're in a town that you're not familiar with and all the townspeople are weird <laughs> and all the townspeople are, they're doing something kind of crazy. And so it's up to you to kind of survive and keep your wits about you. But also, you know, you're trying to investigate like what the hell is going on here. So there's themes like that in the film as well. Uh, but they talk about fantasy meeting reality. And um, I think that that's kind of like a Pan's Labyrinth sort of thing where it's just kind of like it really plays with this idea of like, what is fantasy? What is reality? You know, and this is partly why we love to go to movies and why we like, you know, this kind of entertainment and stuff like that. And so we can kind of suspend, uh, you know, our uh, belief system maybe for a little bit so that we can kind of be engaged and and into, you know, this environment or story or whatever. Um, so I think that that's definitely something that's going on there. And a lot of great movies kind of play with this whole entire dynamic of fantasy meeting reality. Um, In the Mouth of Madness really plays with that, like to an extreme degree <laughs> by the end of the film. It's pretty good. I I, I really liked it. I thought it was fun. You know, um, as far as a a, a director, um, I'm I maybe even would space the specific director, but there's a few films that I have seen that I feel like now that it's been pointed out that some people consider them to be Lovecraftian in nature. Speaking of fantasy reality, um, there there's a movie from I believe it's the early '90s called Jacob's Ladder. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, I, it's it's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, right, to say the least. So I was pleasantly surprised to see that on some people's Lovecraftian film lists. And I can't even tell you the director, to be honest. But uh, Michelle and I watched Jacob's Ladder a few years ago, and we were both like really into it. It's fantastic. So um, that one, to me, just from like a film fan perspective as well, comes highly recommended. Um, it has to do with, you know, this concept of madness and it has to do with this fantasy reality thing. It has to do with, um, you know, mysterious creatures and obviously not really understanding the dynamic of things. And that's a big thing is playing into, you know, the mysteriousness of the universe and how, um, you know, these different characters kind of handle that or not handle it appropriately. Uh, Jacob's Ladder comes to mind. Um and then uh, I really liked, or I was pleasantly surprised to see that The Lighthouse is on some people's list. Have you seen that one by chance? I have not. Um, I have not seen it. It, it. That is the Robert Pattinson movie, correct? Yeah. I think it has yeah, Robert yeah. Pattinson in it. Yeah, I have not seen that one yet. Really fantastic. It's literally about a lighthouse. So they're at the ocean. There's basically the whole film is about two characters. And so it deals with the isolation thing. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in the film. Again, once it was pointed out to me, I can see people's point on how it would be Lovecraftian. I don't think I would have pulled that out just to say that this is like one of those things. But uh, that movie comes to mind. And so um, 
again, so I don't know if I have specific directors, but there's specific films that I've seen over time that I'm like, okay, Dark City was on another list that I saw as being kind of like a Lovecraftian sort of thing. Um, have you seen that one by chance, Dark City? Um, Dark City, years, years ago. I, I don't think I've... I, I I vaguely remember watching it, but I don't I don't remember much from it. Yeah, no worries. It's awesome, dude. It's so good. I can't recommend that one enough. Honestly, it it's very much like if people like The Matrix and some of these Gnostic sort of uh, themed films, uh, Dark City is like right up there in my opinion. It's like parallel with The Matrix sort of thing, or it, in certain ways, it kind of exceeds it in my opinion. Um, but again, there's another sort of thing about somebody questioning their sanity and um, what's reality, what's not reality, you know, and then uh, darker sort of hidden influences um, and uh, this isolation sort of thing. I'm not going to spoil anything, but definitely plays a part in the film um, by the end of it. And so, again, there's some of these movies. I, I couldn't even tell you who directed it. <laughs> I could just tell you that I really liked it when I saw it. Um, Event Horizon, I thought was a really good one as well as like a sci-fi sort of horror kind of thing. Um, yeah. I thought was really, really awesome. But yeah, so those are some of the ones. Uh, the Thing is a classic one that people put on their lists as a Lovecraftian film. And so um, I thought that was great as well um, for a lot of different reasons. You know, they're like snowed in. They're in a, uh, they're not, you know, they're, uh, they're not at home. It's not a comfortable situation. Lots of weird things going on. Um just because it's on my mind, there is this theme too with a lot of like modern sci-fi horror films about people catching like a virus sort of thing and that that turns them into something else and that they turn into a zombie or they turn into a monster, you know, and I'm just wondering, it's like, is the roots of this kind of idea, is that a Lovecraftian thing? Because a lot of modern horror movies and, and sci-fi films have a similar sort of thing. So once you're bitten by this thing, you turn into this thing, or once you see this thing, or once this fog or mist or this sound or whatever, once, once you're exposed to it, you end up turning into, you know, this monstrosity or whatever. So just kind of exploring some of this list of uh, the films that I have seen that people consider to be Lovecraftian. I've noticed that that's also a thing, which is definitely a part of uh, the thing as well. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, was with some family and had um, younger relatives there, like cousins and things that was young. And the, the, we had the, the TV on and they was watching um, this um, Disney animated series, a, a new one. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's called, uh, there was, I remember there was a uproar in the Christian community over it when it first aired a couple of years ago, a few years ago. It's called the Owl House, mm, mm -hmm. um, and it's all—it's very inspired. Like whoever made it, obviously watched like um, Sailor Moon and like Inuyasha. It's very like anime inspired, but the whole premise is this girl. She um she is she is into fantasy things and no one else is so there was that isolation and her mom's gonna send her to like a camp for normal kids or something. It's something like very obvious obvious, like 
conform camp <laughs> like and she doesn't <laughs> want to go go there to the the summer camp so camp, she camp conformity that's funny yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she runs away into the woods and finds this house in the middle of the woods that um opens a portal to the demon realm and mm. she spends the summer in the demon realm learning magic from demons dang and the 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 whole demon realm though is um and this is where we get to lovecraft in a little bit is the whole demon realm um it's not earth it's everything is on the corpse of a giant titan oh, and man. their and their magic is because of the magic in the blood wow of the of the titan of the cosmic blood and and so because it's it's witchcraft and and demons and stuff you know the um that's why the christian community was had uproar over it um uh. but there's i don't know if it's the the series finale or season finale or what but there was the other day when i was with my family there was playing one episode of it and it was like they're battling the, the big villain of it but the villain was um a human that had went to the, this realm in the past who looked like lovecraft he was kind of from that same time period and he he had he, um he was dressed very similar to the, the gentleman that you know dressed around that time period as as you've seen and he wanted to I, i'm assuming he wanted to harness the power there mm. um and so he in doing so he had um corrupted his human body so basically he was just some type of energy that had this goal of gaining all the power of this dead titan and so he was basically um possessing the the titan to manipulate everyone that who who lived on it but when they was infected by it um by his his evilness i guess you could say um they would start growing fungus all over them so it was like they were spreading disease mm. of the the energy of this guy that wanted just i guess to consume all the power all the magic and so there's it, it was so interesting and since i was kind of in the mindset of preparing for our discussion i was like this seems a, a lot lovecraftian mm-hmm. in a sense of you have this watery i mean they call it blood they fly out call it blood but it's basically a red sea <laughs> you know and like this the giant titan and all, all this idea and then now thinking of how she starts off being oh, so alone because she's into fantasy and no one else is into fantasy it seems very lovecraftian mm-hmm, so totally. i i wouldn't be surprised because like i mentioned i um there was a bunch of younger um 
cartoons from like the 90s and early 2000s that I was watching that um, reference. Even South Park, you know, had uses Cthulhu and like Cartman be French Cthulhu. <laughs> so, so it is there. Um, and you, yeah, you have the, what I have been into recently have been a lot of the um older i guess you can call them drive-in movies like the 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 lower budget films of like the 70s and 80s and a lot of them um adapted lovecraft i mean you had um castle freak was one of them um from of course from beyond as i mentioned and you have slightly more well-known ones like the reanimator and bright of the reanimator which gets into like this whole homunculus frankenstein as well idea of the golem of it <laughs> and right, uh, so th- that's interesting and i i wanted to ask because i've only read um the gates of the necronomicon and i've i'm not too familiar with a lot of like the actual stories lovecraft has written and everything Mm -hmm. um that much is there any homunculus garlem like frankenstein creature in any of his work that you're aware of that's a good question man um you know i'm almost inclined to say that there is but i wouldn't be able to point you uh specifically to um a story but um it's interesting because a lot of what he talks about there are just like there's a transmutation that occurs within people and so it may not be like a literal like nuts and bolts sort of thing of like piecing something together to create something new deliberately but it's like um this energy that maybe is associated with a book or is associated with a town or is associated with a deity takes a hold of people and changes them so it's almost kind of like uh there is this change or this flip that kind of occurs with a lot of his short stories and i'm to be honest i'm right there with you i have not read as much Lovecraft, I've read more about him <laughs> from like uh, occultists and 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 whatever magician type people than I actually have his actual real work, you know, the source material or whatever. Yeah. But I do know um, just that there is a lot of this kind of like this sinister sort of changing, you know, sort of thing, and it's like uh, you know, um, not ideal or it's not very pleasant sort of stuff. And so it's the fact that, you know, this whole town suddenly now has something kind of going on with them or somebody now is starting to question their own sanity and whatever. So um, there is this transmutation or whatever that occurs. But as far as there being like kind of like a Frankenstein sort of thing, you know, I'm not sure. But, dude, I definitely would not be surprised at all. Um, It's almost to me, I almost kind of get the uh, impression that it's almost like uh, there's a force, you know, it's this chaotic force. It's this chaotic in a lot of ways, like neutral or indifferent force that kind of permeates, you know, whatever the storyline might be. And it's this kind of cosmic horror sort of thing where it's like this unstoppable force 
that's coming through and is now um, being seen by somebody or being experienced by somebody who is kind of unaware of it. So this is their, you know, they're being exposed to it for the first time. So they're not really sure what to make of it. They just know that something feels, you know, really off. So, um, you know, so that's kind of what I get from it is that there are, you know, um, things being created, monstrosities being created, you know, or hybrid like things being created, but it's a little bit more uh, metaphysical, but I would not be surprised again, if there was a story that's kind of more directly related to what yes. Speaking of, of, of a force, you know, you, we, when we are creating and even in film, you know, so you can get, you know, that divinely inspired and, sure. you know, you're, you know, kind of the a, a driving force of something that's outside of you that's trying to create something. And when, when people are being inspired by Lovecraft and his work, for film, what what do you think is 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 that driving force? Is is there? You also talking about um the transmutation is, and you also was talking about you know being online a lot mm-hmm. earlier. Is that does that maybe something that could be pushing? transhumanism because that has mm. been on the rise um or is there something else what is is there anything about that this force and it being um kind of channeled throughout you know film and all these um creations that people you know because what once um the the film is it's channeled and the film is created and is put on our screens and we're watching it we become part of the of the process of communing with you know these energies yeah these entities um could you go with all that being said could you kind of explore this idea of the force more and yeah where do you speculate it going looking at how it is in film that's a great question man um you know i think that generally there's a force which fits with all of the magical things that i've kind of been talking about a little bit but um it's a a chaotic force you know it's a chaotic force that i think he is tapping into and um the philosophy that people kind of associate him with and I don't know if they're saying that he's ex- exactly the person who started it or just popularized it or or whatever but cosmicism and it's this idea of this vast huge cosmos and that we are insignificant and that our lives this is what um I think what a lot of people get from his work which is why it's so terrifying that uh, we are insignificant and that we are meaningless and that the creation of this realm the creation of of earth and our lives that um that it's uh it was a chaotic sort of happenstance that there is no divine creator that there is no um rhythm to all of this 
And that um, I think the whole thing that he was all about was that um, man wants to, how do you, how does man, um, what happens when man realizes that he's trying to find meaning in life, but that the cosmos itself is meaningless. I think that that's what he was trying to put out there, which isn't my personal philosophy, you know? And so I think that a lot of people have said that he's not nihilistic, that he was not a nihilistic person. He was just being realistic with things. But I think that there was a bit of nihilism in there. And so I think that actually, to be honest, um, I think there was self-hatred. And then I think that um, Lovecraft himself, if you know his general storyline sort of checks out and everything else, because whenever somebody gets this popular, in my opinion, whenever their work is um this well respected and they've kind of stood the test of time and their influence is still felt all of these years later i personally question i'm like so who were they really you know what you know our understanding of him based on wikipedia or youtube videos or something is that actually accurate you know if we hung out with him and we're in a room with him what would we um, pick up about his vibe i guess you know um but um, I think that he basically, um, I think he loathed himself probably. And I think that there was a lot of shadow work that he perhaps avoided doing. But I think it was expressed in his projects. I think it was expressed in these short stories and in his poetry and stuff like that. And so to me, the way I look at it is like, we all have a subconscious, which is vast and it's very deep, right? Um, and it's going to come out at some point, you kind of, you almost can't keep it suppressed sort of thing. So if you're not addressing your shadow, in my opinion, um, it's going to express itself and you're better off understanding it and working with it, taming your own beast and understanding your own psychology and understanding how deep your roots go, um, instead of allowing it to kind of come out. Cause what's going to happen is if you don't kind of have a relationship with self that way then your shadow is going to um come out in a kind of uh in a way that probably might be perceived as being a um maybe like a negative outburst or it could be something that you might regret later sort of thing that it's better to kind of understand the good the bad and the ugly of your whole entire psychology than not acknowledging it and then it's going to just uh it's going to express itself you know in one way shape or form regardless if you like it or not sort of thing so when you see somebody and they're doing really abhorrent terrible things to people it's like um well it's because they um they've gone unchecked with all of these different things and so um there's a quote that i'm totally spacing on right now but it speaks to this exactly that uh, if you don't develop your relationship with self, the darker aspects of self basically are going to run amok pretty much. And so I think that that's kind of what he was doing. So I think for him, there was probably a lot of therapeutic aspects of him getting some of this stuff out there, but I think it's a reflection of his own personal psychology. So, you know, anyone who creates any work of art, it's like it, it's a, there's a mirroring effect going on with how they perceive the world, how they perceive reality things like that. So I think he had a particularly negative view of reality and of life. 
and everything else. And I think what people tend to do as well, and I'm included in all this stuff, by the way, but I think what people tend to do is they uh, have an outlook on life and they have, um, they have a, their own personal philosophy on things because that's the world that they're comfortable in. So Lovecraft was more comfortable being an atheist, as an example. It made him very uncomfortable thinking about the idea that there might be some sort of creator or some sort of grand design or whatever. He was way more comfortable with the concept that everything is meaningless and everything's insignificant and that his life is insignificant. Why is that the case? You know, what does that say about him sort of psychologically that he would rather live in that reality than not? And so I think some of his own personal horrors were expressed with these deities. And so I think that there's a direct correspondence with the psychology of Lovecraft and the material, you know, that he's putting out and that he put out and everything else. And so, um, so that's why I think it speaks to a lot of younger people, like what you're saying, or, you know, uh, newer generations or whatever is because they actually feel very similar you know, that they do think that things are meaningless. They are atheists. They don't think that they have a purpose in life. They don't think that uh, maybe there's any such thing as like uh, the spiritual realm or whatever. And so I think that they're more comfortable with all of these ideas of, um, you know, of these deities and these completely horrific monstrosities, you know, um, being out there and uh, maybe visiting us or uh, bringing, you know, like destruction and chaos and mayhem and all this other stuff. I think for some reason it really uh, that resonates more than, say, um, you know, the concept that if you know yourself, you'll know the universe sort of thing. It's almost antithesis to the spiritual path, I think. So there's a lot of things that I see in his work, very nihilistic Um also, too, you can just tell by the nature of how he, you know, constructs his universe and, and these deities and what they do and everything else that, you know, he's not someone who believes in, uh, at least to my understanding, in like reincarnation as an example. So he probably doesn't think that, um, you know, there is any point in working on yourself or any point in maybe having like a, a, a moral compass or even kind of wrestling with any of these kinds of concepts because, you're just going to die and then your body's going to disintegrate. And that that's kind of it. So uh, I think a lot of the people who integrated some of his magical stuff as well, they might think something similar. And so to them, a lot of these people who are like dark magicians or black magicians, sometimes they think that this is like the only opportunity they have to do anything. And so they kind of uh, create their life in such a way that uh, kind of like uh, YOLO, you only live once sort of thing. And so you're going to while out or you're going to try and work with demons to do this, that, and the other thing. And so they don't have any faith at all. And um, I'm not saying that it has to be faith in a specific God or whatever, but they don't really have a spiritual backbone. And like I said earlier, it, it appeared as though it appears as though that Lovecraft did not have a spiritual backbone. Um, you know, yet I think the way I look at it, is that um, I think the material world came last. And so I think the realm of spirits, I think the realm of symbolism, the realm of narrative, the dream realm, you know, all of this, the realm of imagination and creativity, I think all of that stuff came before the material realm. And Lovecraft, he, he believed the exact opposite. So he believed, and that's what most atheists believe, is that the material realm came first, our minds came first, and then now we're trying to put meaning on everything. 
you know, I look at it the exact opposite is that the world of meaning actually came first before physicality, before matter actually came into existence and everything. Um, so, um, yeah, so those are a few thoughts about all of that stuff. Uh, did I answer your question by chance? I kind of <laughs> went yeah, on a little yeah, stream of consciousness. Yeah, there. yeah. Now that's, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you that the, that the, the realm of meaning and symbols and imagination, all, all, all what that is came first, most mm -hmm. definitely. Uh, my next question would to kind of, continue with that this um weave is how can if people are going to um read Lovecraft stories or watch movies based on his work um and be inspired or try to work with you know his his mythology and his pantheon how can is there a way that you can work with it and be inspired by it mm. and but not um not get stuck in all his shadow work can can yeah. you use someone else's shadow work and that what they what has been created through that can you use it to you know, be inspired and work, work on yourself and create something. Yeah, good. totally. I think so. I think so. Um, you know, I look at it like it's all perspective, right? And so it's all perspective. So if you have a negative outlook on reality and life, you're, that's what you're going to receive. And, um, you're going to make it so, because that's just your perspective. If you have a scarcity mindset, that's going to be your reality. If you have an abundance mindset, that's going to be your reality. And don't get me wrong, dude, it's way easier said than done. <laughs> and so it's not the easiest thing in the world to think abundantly. I've had to work really hard to um, be more in that mindset, pretty much, you know. And so this is something that um, you can work on. So when I view Lovecraftian, you know, um, movies or whatever, and I know that this is Lovecraftian inspired, with the movies that I, I uh, watched recently prepping for this conversation, the way I look at it is when I see something in a horror film in general, I guess, and they're exploring this cosmic horror and they're trying to um, create unimaginable, you know, monstrosities and they're trying to terrify you and they are trying to induce like an existential sort of dread or whatever. Um, when I view something like that, I look at it as this is an expression of my subconscious as well, you know? And so I Cthulhu or some of these deities or whatever, um, they're psychological. So they're speaking to my psychology as well. And so I don't look at it like, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I get meaning from it. I don't interpret this meaningless sort of thing. So when I see it, if I see any kind of like, you know, uh, creature feature and there's these things that are kind of out there. Hellraiser, this is another good, I, I feel like Hellraiser, the first one, um, that's been on some of the lists for uh, Lovecraft inspired films. And so there's certain lines in Hellraiser that uh, really resonated with me. I wouldn't be able just to rattle them off off the top of my head, but uh, they resonated with me. 
And um, when I see things like that, that are particularly dark or whatever, I look at it as an expression of kind of like the collective unconscious, pretty much. And we're all going to come up with our own different interpretations of what movies mean. That's one of the cool things about any medium is that somebody can write an album or make a movie or something and have one intention behind it, but then other people can kind of run with it and see different things within it. And they're going to come up with their own sort of um, takeaway from what you decided to put out there. Um, But whenever I see a movie and I'm particularly engaged with it, I always think what I'm seeing is um, conversations between um, multiple elements of one psychological sort of framework or whatever. So you're going to have a good guy. You're going to have a bad guy, right? You always have the protagonist and antagonist. You're going to have a story arc. You're going to have all of these other little characters or whatever. I almost just look at it. It's like, you're almost kind of like um, watching, you know, um, you're watching these different characters interact. And if it's done well, you resonate with all of the characters, you know, you resonate with the good guy, you resonate with the bad guy. That's become way more popular too, where we actually really sympathize with the bad guy. So this didn't used to necessarily be a thing, I think maybe um, in certain ways, but now I, I think that there's way more films over the last 10, 20 years where you're actually like rooting for the bad guy, you know, supposedly you're, you're kind of acknowledging that even these bad guys that, um, they also, you know, they have their own psychology, they have their own storyline, they have their own rhyme and reason why they're doing all of these, you know, different things or whatever. And yeah, so, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. So even I think of like Walter White or something like that, Breaking Bad. It's like he's like making meth and he's selling meth and all this stuff, but there's a reason behind it, right? So um, so whenever I see these types of figures, I, I just internalize all of it pretty much. So I am the good guy. I am the bad guy. You know, all of the gods and devils are within us pretty much. And so there's certain films where, um, the, uh, the adversarial figure I resonate more with. And I'm like, man, there's something about this figure. I know they're doing atrocious things, but there's something about how he's doing it that I actually kind of respect in a way, you know, there's certain villains and I'm like, wow, I'm like, why, why am I, why is this character clicking with me? You know? Um, and I think it just speaks to the, the fact that um, we as um, humans have a complex psychology and there's a lightness to us and there's a darkness to us. And my personal opinion is that you're way better off exploring both sides of those um, both sides of the spectrum than ignoring it. I think that if you're all the way on the love and light side, I think that you might be missing part of the picture. I think if you're all the way on the um, the dark sort of chaotic side of things and you're not acknowledging the light side, I think you're going to be missing part of the picture. You know, the same way where I really have a reverence for Mercury because Mercury is androgynous. And there's a reason why a lot of different magical groups and uh, lodge groups and stuff why they have a reverence for Mercury as well, because Mercury is androgynous. Mercury is both feminine and masculine. So it can go either which way. And I think as kind of like a uh, occultist or magician or whatever you want to say, someone who has an interest in all that stuff, I think you're much better off embracing, no matter what gender you are, embracing your masculine 
and embracing your feminine so that when um, different opportunities arise or different situations arise, you can be feminine and you can be emotional and you can tap in and you can talk to someone and sympathize and you can listen and be receptive. And then I think it also makes sense to know when to tap into your masculine and when to project and when to, you know, stand your ground and, and, you know, all this other kind of stuff, um, you know, and so I kind of look at film very much the same way where, uh, I think these are all aspects of self. So whenever I see a villain or there's something horrific on screen, um, I tend to just internalize it that way. And so I think horror films, the, one of the reasons why they're so appealing is because it kind of helps humanity. It helps people kind of express some of these latent, um, you know, underground sort of, um, feelings or, you know, these sorts of dynamics, you know, it's just like the uh, iceberg analogy. I'm sure you've heard of this before, but that our conscious mind is that little part of the iceberg that's above the water. And then the other 75% of the iceberg that exists underneath the water, that's your subconscious, you know? And so that's, what's really driving the show personally. So I would say too, maybe just to more directly answer your question or whatever, Horror movies, whether they're Lovecraftian or whatever, whatever their influence might be, um, I would say that it also helps us understand what triggers us. And so as an example, if you're watching a film and there's a uh, there's a scene that's unpleasant, it's really good to just check yourself and be like, man, actually, that one did not sit very well with me. I don't know why when this person said this or when this thing happened in this movie, I totally got triggered. Um, that's an opportunity for you to learn more about yourself. That's an opportunity for you to learn about your psychology and maybe um, work on something within yourself, you know? So that's kind of how I tend to see it too is um, and Michelle and I, we've gone through several examples where over the years, just watching movies together where she would get triggered or I would get triggered based on the scene and then it's just like we have an opportunity then to hash it out and to talk about maybe memories or something from our childhood or whatever you know there's been times where we're watching a movie and it's really intense and we've had to pause it and michelle's like i need to stop like i need to stop because something's going on here and then we just talk about it and i'm like honestly i think we're better off exploring some of this stuff and acknowledging maybe you know, um, what's going on within us, how we're feeling when certain things come on screen, addressing it, working through it, growing as individuals and growing as couples, instead of maybe never looking at that kind of material, and then never addressing it. So yeah, yeah, I like that. Actually, um, when I watched Del Toro's, Del Toro's Pinocchio, I wasn't like heavily triggered by this, but there was a line that Pinocchio says about fathers, because you know, mm. the whole the whole message of Pinocchio is you know a, really just about a son and a father and that dynamic. And there's there's something that Pin Pinocchio says in it that this it was so slightly kind of yeah tugged at me a little exactly. bit, and I was like. Wow, I, was, I, I did not expect that. So I totally um, resonate with what you're saying. And it's really similar how I approach movies. That's why, like on, on this channel, on King of Cusman, 
we are talking about movies. We are we're not saying the things that we are seeing are are the end all and be all of the these films. We're also not claiming to be, you know, philosophers and the the authority, the authority of um, of you know knowing films or, or that. What we are doing is we are watching the films. We are going with it because art it takes three things and it, it that can be linked to the Trinity. And that is, um, I mean, technically, I guess you could say four, but I always say three, um, which is the artist, the art, and the the viewer of the art. And it takes those three things for that alchemical process to, to, to really happen. And that's why you can, you know, you know, it's the whole beauty is in the eye of the beholder thing, but it's beyond that. There's more to that, and that is the dynamic of the art, the artist, and the person viewing it. Um, the fourth one that I guess you could say would be a muse, like if there was a divine divine muse. Mm-hmm. But I usually look at it as a trinity. So I think there is definitely is something to what you're saying. And um, yeah, the, I've I've also noticed uh, this idea, the idea of um, giving the villain a backstory, making him more relatable. I've actually been trying to figure out the best way to package that as a possible um, presentation on Kino Cup, so that that a, uh, a presentation on why that has become a trend in the last like 20 years um because like when when it, it all happened um in my life in my, in my last year basically because like when i was young like it was all the um black and gray like the the the, the hero and the villain the, the protagonist, the antagonist. And then slowly over time, you start seeing it. And now it's, it's just everywhere. Mm. And um, and I think it's inter- my first um, interaction with identifying with a villain or an antagonist-like character was Zuko from The Last Airbender, actually. Mm. I, when I first watched, I admired Aang for his, his how... His teachings and his, the the wisdom that his character shared, but I heavily I um, connected with the lessons and the trials and tribulations of Zuko, and yet he wasn't the the villain of the entire series. He had his arc, but he started out as the as the antagonist, and I, that was one of the most interesting things when I was a kid. I was like, wait. Those, they're not just going to fight him and defeat him. Like <laughs> there, right. was, there was definitely a, a realization there for me. Um, the next thing I like to bring up, though, is um, we we kind of talked about this when we was d- thinking about movies, just between us two. 
mm-hmm. I had brought up um the um is it the ninth gate the the Johnny Depp movie. Oh yeah, dude, such a great movie. Um, which loved it. I such a good movie. It's so intriguing, and it. I wouldn't say it's a Lovecraft movie, but the the it was said that the the, the grimoire he's hunting for was inspired by the the Necronomicon, um, and that's why people consider the Ninth Gate mm-hmm. um, a Lovecraftian movie because they see the the grimoire he's hunting for as the Necronomicon. Yeah. Um, so my question to for this movie in particular is seeing looking at the story of the um, gate as in this lens of a Lovecraftian movie, is there anything that um, sticks out to you? differently now that you think back on it in that yeah, way interesting um i mean now that it's been pointed out that some people consider it to be lovecraftian i don't remember the necronomicon reference in the film i just remember really liking the movie and there's certain things that it was earlier on in my occult research i guess you could say in tarot research and there was like whoa my brain and uh there was just fireworks going off because there were certain scenes where i'm like that is the hangman. I know that they're encoding the hangman in this scene right here. You know, things like that. I started seeing stuff like that. And then also, too, one of the reasons why it really resonated with me is because uh, I like Roman Polanski. I think he's an interesting director. And so I went on a Roman Polanski sort of kick and wanted to just, you know, see more of his work. And so that was the uh, reason why we even watched it to begin with. Um, but the book collecting thing, and again, these grimoires, you know, making people go mad, they're lusting for power. There's a, um, there's just an interesting thing with the, with just grimoires and magical texts in general, where a lot of people, you know, they're on, they're kind of searching for that book. They're searching for that relic. They're searching for that thing that's going to give them the secrets of the cosmos. And sometimes that yearning for that kind of power or for that kind of knowledge or understanding or whatever, um, it's even more potent than what they're actually going to find in the book. You know, it's almost like anticipating like a movie coming out that you're really excited about or like a, a video game or something. I remember just being so stoked waiting for this thing to drop and then you're done and you're like, oh man, it was actually almost even more fun waiting for it <laughs> than actually watching the thing. You know, and so to me, I feel like there might be a similar sort of thing where um, people are like uh, lusting after that thing so much that they're putting so much into it that they're like, okay, so if I just had the Necronomicon, then I'll be next level, then I can do this or then I can do that. I'll have these superpowers. So there's almost this sort of thing where they think that this book, just by reading it, it's going, you're going to be transmuted and you're going to be, a, you know, you're going to go through an alchemical sort of process and that you're then going to be as powerful as what people have suggested um, this book is all about, right? So there's going to be this sort of like um, transference of energy or power from the book to you because now you own the book. And then obviously there's a lot to be said about owning like an original copy of something 
that maybe did have, you know, ritualistic ties. Maybe there are certain things corded to the book, um, being spirits, whatever, you know? So, um, so yeah, so I can definitely see that that's a major, major part, obviously in the movie, because Johnny Depp is playing a uh, rare book dealer, right? And he's, he's on the hunt for this book or whatever. And so that reminds me of the whole Necronomicon sort of thing, um, which that's like a whole thing within Lovecraftian um, lore and stuff is, is there a real Necronomicon? Did it ever exist? What was his inspiration for that? And then obviously once he started putting this out in his work, now there's a bunch of Necronomicons. You know, I have several sitting here, <laughs> you know, on this table, you have one sitting right next to you, you know? And so they're all kind of, um, in a way, it's like an, this egregore sort of concept or whatever. It's like they're kind of tapping into, um, you know, just the uh, the allure of this book. They're kind of tapping into the mythology and the symbolism tied to the book. And so um, so there's all of that. So I think that that's, you know, probably was a direct sort of reference, right? Obviously, you said that they mentioned it in the film that... Uh, that it was inspired by it or, or whatever, or it's similar to it in, to some degree. Yeah. And so, um, so I think that's probably the most potent Lovecraftian thing that I can kind of, um, recall about it, but it's been a number of years since I've seen it too. I just remember, I freaking loved it, man. I should actually watch it again, honestly, because yeah, I, yeah. I appreciated it so much. Yeah. It was, it was so interesting. Um, and what you were talking about just now made me think of, of the idea of tapping into an egregore of someone's work, whether it's book or a film. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering, can you know, we um, we idolize movies, directors, authors, their novels? Um, I, I I'm wondering if there is some type of pantheon uh, of of entities or of energies that we have um, now that we have like the digital age and there's so much content everyone is a content creator if there's going to be some type of like almost like uh and uh, like you're talking about with with lovecraft where you know people are working with these these entities but he's also like kind of denying the necronomicon exists so there's like this mystery there. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if people through, you know, whether it's like a, a web comic or film or a TV show or even a video game, they're so they're they're working with the really the imagination of the of the the creator that of of that of that material, the, the, the director or over there, they're kind of working with an entity of the creator's imagination, the egregore of that person's imagination and everything that that person stands for in a way. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering if there's 
any magic there. Um, that that's something definitely to, possibly to think about as we are consuming film and all these things. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. Yeah. Is I I also wanted to ask you about uh, a little bit since I had you about your Lovecraft um, work with the your northern symbolism mm. and is is there any movies that you can think of actually that possibly had see have seedlings of this northern idea it, has there ever been like a film and you like you're sitting there and you're like oh they're totally trying to do a geocentric um, <laughs> right. hinting at geocentricity or something is there anything like that that you cannot you know not necessarily lovecraft just film in general Totally, totally. Yeah, no, that's a great question, too. Um, just real quick, do you mind if I hit the restroom real fast? I'm not sure if you edit these things. Do you edit these things or do you just upload them as is? I just upload them. Sometimes I edit them, but you, you can totally go. <laughs> okay, right on, right on. One second. Yeah. Okay. Hey. Hey, 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 cool. Uh thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um so to answer your question off the top of my head, I cannot think of anything because in fact, it's like the exact opposite where I feel like most movies that are um, you know, uh sci-fi based or horror based or whatever, they tend to be kind of reinforcing the traditional sort of narrative about heliocentrism and being able to go to outer space and all this other kind of stuff. So if I saw something like that, I probably, I would guess my, my guess would be that I would remember, but um, for the most part, I feel like I, I see kind of the exact opposite is that most films tend to toe the line um, that way. But 
I think it would be an incredible project to make or something. You know, I think that it's really rich for someone who has this kind of outlook or whatever to create something that is kind of um, based around some of the ideas that you just put out there. Can you yeah. think of anything? I know you watch a lot of stuff. Can you think of anything like that? Not, ne not necessarily um, blatant as Northern symbolism. There are some stuff that, as we mentioned earlier, that I've kind of, with my own mindset, I've kind of painted like, oh, maybe that is something. Like one that I can think of is actually in the movie they live mm. um, when they go into the base and they see them um going on the platform and like being beamed out into space and they were just in it's just like a platform and like a screen of like a of a galaxy but there's no planets and since that's underground and since you didn't see any planets or anything, and with the way the, the entities code themselves, I kind of saw it as like a uh, um, inner, like inner earth, um, mm. inter interdimensional type of thing, rather than, you know, like a Star Wars, you know, he heliocentric type of, of yeah something like that and that's why i asked because a lot of times when when i refer to what you would call heliocentric centric uh, i normally just call it the star wars theory <laughs> um, so, <laughs> because that's where it comes from <laughs> that's so, funny yeah. dude yeah so yeah yeah that's why no that I, would be uh, it'd be really cool to see something like that i feel like i've seen hints at it in certain movies where I'm like maybe that's what they're talking about or I'm seeing it a different way and I'm kind of like tripping out or whatever and um, it's usually you know just a little portion of the film or project or whatever but nothing that like is like going there and saying like hey this is like how it is or you know um, they're not suggesting that uh, someone the writer or the director is really well aware of this whole entire dynamic but I would not be surprised if at some point we see something along these lines though, because I think it would be freaking, I think it'd be really interesting. I I've thought of ideas for like a North star sort of movie or something that kind of gets into some of this stuff um, that we've talked about before. And, you know, people see on yeah. my channel and everything. I think that would be really, really cool. So maybe one of these days, dude, I kind of have like, I have one long-term dream just to make one feature film at some point. I think that would be really, really cool. Maybe, in my late forties or something like that, I can get that together. Uh, Cause yeah. I went to film school for a few years and uh, I don't know if I could just make one, I think that would be cool. Yeah. But we'll see. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, Hellraiser earlier and one of, I forget the director's name was slipping from my memory at, at the time. Um, but one of his other films is Nightbreed. Oh, okay. Um, and again, it plays into exactly what we're talking about because the whole um, idea of Nightbreed is um, the 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 protagonist, the main character, is 
he's seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist because um, he, when he was younger, he would have these imaginary experiences, whether it's like with an imaginary friend or something. And it was it always like, it was very um, like monstrous. To, um, you could even say like demonic, like creatures, um, very in the same vein as like the, the creatures from Hell, uh, Hellraiser. Um, and the, he's trying to deal with it as like a, an adult. And oh, mm. that was just my young imagination. And it's going to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is um, giving him medication, but um, he, there was this whole like, is it real? Is it not real? And of course, they do answer it in the film, but it's that like, which one is it type of, of mindset? And like, they kind of pull you both ways until you get to the end. Mm. And, and and then you the the world the 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 night breed world is very is very much as like these different um it's almost like how Dotor pictured it in uh, Pan's Labyrinth. A lot. I think a lot of the same techniques um, designing these both creatures in both films were mm-hmm. probably very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I was watching the the latter half of the movie, I was like, "Well, this kind of reminds me of Pan's Labyrinth," um, but it has that theme, and so and I wouldn't necessarily classify that as a Lovecraft film. And so now we're getting to the point where we're like, Lovecraft within itself is idea, this egregore, this aesthetic, this mindset is becoming its own thing, this own genre, this own genre. So we are getting new, new Lovecraft stories. Yeah. Um, almost like I would consider it fan fiction because I personally don't consider anything canon when. Um, other people are writing f- instead of the creator of the original material. Yeah. Um, like for instance, the 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 Witcher games. Some people consider them canon to with the book, but I don't consider the Witcher. They're fun games, but I don't consider the Witcher games in the same continuity as the books because it's not written by the author. Mm. Um, so, um, we will be getting. We and we we see it in in films and in graphic novels and things. Um, these new new Lovecraft tales. Um, right. Where do, where do you think that's going? Right. If, do you have any opinions on that? That's a really good question. I mean, if you're looking at things. I mean, it's kind of um, technology has a part to play in all this, right? And so it's like, what is like the current medium of the day? Arguably, video games, I I think, is like the current modern sort of medium, even though I don't really play them that often um, 
or you could argue, uh, you know, something along the lines of like social media or what we're doing here. You know, people get a lot of their entertainment from obviously the internet now, but you know, video games are really interactive. And so the, the graphics are just getting better and better. Obviously video games largely, you know, were influenced by films and things like that. Film was influenced by radio radio was influenced by the written word basically and so i think where it's going you know if you're looking at it from like a current or futuristic sort of medium thing it's going to be way more interactive i think personally just this is we're talking film here so might as well just get into this whole idea that i have is um it's really interesting when you start looking at just the evolution of the screen i think it's really fascinating and so for many, many years, for a long time, people, obviously people just had no concept of, of anything that's like a, a visual sort of um, medium that's actually like, uh, you know, playing out, you know, frame by frame with sound and color and all this other stuff that was like not, not a thing until, uh, you know, uh, movies became a thing. And then even then the frame rate was low um, it was black and white. And then you had to go outside of the home to literally watch a, a movie. And so I just think it's interesting to think about the idea that people had to leave the home way back in the day to watch a movie. And at some point, the screen that they were watching, right, um, they're like across the room from it. And the screen is really big. And then at a certain point, that screen came, came home. And so now you have a television set in your home, it replaced your radio or, you know, there's a period of time where people had both or whatever, but people were watching TV in the home. So you no longer had to go out to watch movies or something. These talking pictures, you can watch it at home. And then over time, obviously these screens got color. Um, the, just the technology started advancing and everything else. And at a certain point, these screens got larger in the living room. And then, uh, eventually the personal computer came around. And so now you have a screen, whereas beforehand it was across the living room to watch a movie. And then now you have a screen on your desktop, you know, literally on your desk right there, kind of in front of you. And then at a certain point, screen technology and technology evolved to such a degree that um, now you just carry your screen with you everywhere, or you have a laptop or something. So now obviously uh, virtual reality which there's a whole thing about virtual reality and like, is this really going to come to fruition the way we've been promised for the last 20, 30 years or whatever? Seems like there's like lots of sort of delays and the adoption and stuff, you know, with it, it's kind of slow or whatever. People still, I think, prefer to be a little detached from the screen for whatever reason, you know, but it just seems to me like the screen itself, it's like getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to us. So we're now we're just we're watching things on our phone and we're interacting with our screen. Now there's not even any buttons on our phones anymore or anything else like that. Right. And so to me, I just think that the medium is going to get closer and closer and closer to us, whether it's going to be like the uh, Elon Musk Neuralink chip or whatever it is, you know, uh, or it's going to be, you know, virtual reality glasses. I know multiple companies have tried to come out with their own glasses that just look like reading glasses or whatever, but there's actually like, you know, screens on it. Um, if you take this whole entire idea and you really advance it and you're like looking down the road, you're not going to know whether or not you're looking at a screen at some point, 
you know, now you have babies that are literally playing with their iPads or playing with iPhones and stuff. And so it's like these kids are like getting used to living within that matrix from like a very, very, very young age. And when you talk about the matrix, the whole thing is that, right, they're plugged in, right? And so they're plugged in from birth. So they don't know that what they're interfacing with isn't the real world. And so it's like, when are we going to get to that point with everything? You know, are there going to be kids, you know, there's going to be kids that arguably obviously spend way more time online and way more time with that screen than they ever have in the real world. Like we're already raising children that way. Right. And so then what does that say about, you know, all of the uh, artwork or all of the different things that they're going to be consuming, all of the content and everything with like cosmic horror stuff or like Lovecraftian stuff. I would just imagine that, you know, um, some of the content that's coming out that might be interactive, might be virtual reality or whatever. Um, it's just going to be that much more um, immersive, pretty much. And what does that actually look like? I don't really know. But I do know that technology wants to get in us. I think that that's part of the deal is that, you know, there is a clear separation and just the lines are getting blurred and blurred and blurred and blurred even more so. And it seems as though technology wants to either envelop us entirely, kind of like a matrix type situation, or they actually want to get in us, you know, and so, or both something along these lines. So I just think that uh, the immersion of like horror games, as an example, you know, some horror games are really scary. <laughs> it's been a while since I've played any of them, but some of these horror games, the last one that I really loved was uh, Resident Evil 4, you know, when it came out like forever ago. But when I was playing that thing, I was like, holy shit, this is terrifying. It was more terrifying, you know, some of the scenes um, or even the first Resident Evil, like on PlayStation, that was horrifying. I look at the graphics now, it's really funny. And it's like, <laughs> you know, the polygons are all, you know, very uh, obvious and stuff like that. But um, interacting with these environments, interacting with some of these Lovecraftian themes, um, it's just going to be even more interactive. And I think it's going to be more terrifying that way. And with games too, it's like you can really have a slow burn with it, you know, versus a movie, it's going to be one and a half to two and a half hours or something like that. Usually with a game, it could be 20, 30, 40, 50. It may never end, you know, that I can see that kind of happening too. It's already kind of happening where it's just like these worlds are being generated on the fly. You know, AI is probably going to play its part in uh, things somehow. So you might play a game in the future where literally your actual real life, most terrifying sort of like imagination might literally be on screen and that's what you're interacting with. And the AI knows exactly what's going to trigger you because it knows what you watch online. It knows the things that you like. It knows the movies you've already seen. It's going to have such a full psychological breakdown of what Chris is all about or what Mario is all about that I can see some developer using all of that data to create the most horrifying personal experience for you. You know what I mean? And so there could be relatives in there. There could be memories in there. It, who knows? It, there could be all sorts of wild things in there. Um, I could see that kind of happening with, with AI and a bunch of other stuff. So um, yeah. So those are just a few thoughts off the top of my head. It's a really, really good question. Um, yeah. I'd be curious to know what you think about where it's headed. Um, I, I think 
where it's heading because so again this goes back to my whole outlook on um how powerful the imagination is and how that is our the our where our root of our connection to the divine is mm. is coming through our imagination um i i i think that because think about the the when screens came into our house and it became access 24 7 we we stopped dreaming because we was up all night (laughs) (laughs) you know digitally dreaming because we are watching you know movies till the wee hours of the morning or playing video games all night trying to just one more level just one more level you know we're chasing that dragon and so we're, we're not we're not dreaming we're not visiting our own um dream realm we're not communing with that part of ourselves and so i i think your i guess my answer would be in in that sense it would have to be something because i i think we we want to be imaginative we want that we want to dream that's why when we aspire to do something in the real world we say well this is your dream what do you want to be when you grow up well my dream that i want to be when i grow up is you know i i want to be a filmmaker or i want you know i want to be a fireman or you know I want to help people, yada yada, and we we have all these dreams, and you know they some of them are more realistic, some of them are more um, fr- um, frantical, and I and the the people that can master that can usually kind of bring to reality so i think um with our lack of time in in that space we are going to be starving for that even more Mm. and that's where um a supplement could can um will come into play, um, whether that is VR or something else, I don't know. I think um, our, our next, because what we're talking about is an evolution of storytelling mm-hmm. from like bards and mythologies to modern day film. And there is that direct link there. So if you're thinking about the way the films are, the way that that journey has taken place for for stories to get to film, and now look at, um, instead of looking at these stories, even in film and being like, oh, I want to, 
I'm inspired. I want to be like this protagonist or this character or whatever. Um, we are doing the complete opposite. We're like, well, this character is is not realistic because I don't choose to measure up to that level. So please um, have representation of my character in your film. So mm-hmm. I don't have to uh, be inspired and achieve that that level. And I think that's where the whole um, representation matters comes into play is people are wanting to achieve to these archetypes. So they're trying to bring the these archetypes kind of down in the stories that we're telling people. So, oh, well, they're just like me, so I don't have to achieve anything anymore. Um, mm. So I think that all kind of plays into itself to where, you know, not trying to be all doom and gloom, because I think there is a, a way to um, take control of this and grow in a positive way. And I, I feel like we can still do that. And I think with like the spiders and what we do is a hint and is a set on the right um, direction and people that do things like that. Um, but also I can, I can see where um, they're just going to be prescribing you um, artificial dreams, artificial things for your imagination just to feed that itch. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, no, exactly. I could see yeah. that. You know, um, uh, I was just going to say the other thing, too, that I think is interesting is I kind of can see... Like if you study um, like horror films throughout the decades and stuff, the horror, like the specific genre or subgenre of horror film says a lot about where humanity is at. You know, it, it speaks to where humanity is at, like philosophically, I guess. And so over the last like, I don't even know, 40, 50, 60 years or whatever, like zombie movies have become a thing where they weren't so much a thing necessarily beforehand. And then, so there's lots of zombie movies. So it's like, what does that say about humanity? What does that say about humanity's relationship with each other? Um, you know, what does it say about all of that? You know, and so to me, I can kind of see too, like uh, a horror genre or a uh, cosmic horror sort of genre, really, really playing around with the idea of technology um, being flipped on its head. And that um, technology kind of a going rogue or technology somehow being used against us now. Whereas right now it's like, we're all, I mean, how many people work from home now, you know, all this kind of stuff, like how connected we all are. So like the technology of things sort of concept kind of being turned on its head. I think that that would make a really good horror sort of premise and would speak to this isolation sort of thing. Or what happens too, I was even thinking about it like as a horror movie, it's like, can you imagine if there was like a, a situation where um, something was able, was tapped in to the networks and whatever, and it was just sending text messages to all these people. And it's like the most horrific shit imaginable, but it's all psychologically you know, fine-tuned so that you think you're getting a uh, text from Chris 
and it's not really Chris, but it's saying something that's going to trigger them because they think that Chris is now no longer your friend or is upset at them or whatever. Or, you know, uh, it te- I, I go, um, I'm out of town or something and it texts Michelle and, uh, you know, she thinks that I whatever did whatever, you know, it's like, because technology is the interface of everything that we do nowadays, what happens if that was flipped on its head and we're no longer getting accurate information and we're no longer able to use it the way we've been accustomed to using it. Like I think technology, again, like showing the uh, the shadow side of technology, I think could potentially be like a horror sort of thing that's used to like great effect, you know? Yeah, I, I could see that. There was even kind of hints at that with the, um, Scream 3. Okay. Because they, the, the, um, in, in Scream 3, what, um, Ghostface was using because Screen Three came out in 2000, so it was, you know, it was right at that millennium thing. You know, technology was very mystery and mercurial and all that, and and he saw that in a lot of movies. And Wes Craven used that to his advantage, where he had Ghostface use a um, voice changer where he had collected all the different voices of oh. the people he was going after. And then he would call them as the other person. So they would think that it's someone warning them that Ghostface is out there. Like, you know, he would have like Sydney's voice and he would call someone and pretend like he was Sydney. And they mm-hmm. think, oh, Sydney's endangered. Ghostface is after Sydney. I'm going to have to go to this place. And then, you know, he's there. So there was always already that kind of idea of like pretending to be the the other person in that movie um totally yeah i i think that would be a actual a um interesting place and they even did that in um kind of in um the fifth screen talking about screen where they recreated the the opening, the Drew Barrymore opening from the first movie, but since it was in, you know, like what, 2020, 2021, um, they had the, um, the like Alexa, um, Amazon smart house system, and they used their phone to lock all their doors, but then whoever Ghostface was also would, had that same. Mm. signal and yeah. could unlock the doors through the technology and uh, i just saw yesterday um the amazon ring the um the doorbell camera yeah. mm-hmm. um in the terms and conditions um it gives you the I'm not for sure. I haven't looked at it too deeply, but how it seems like there's something in the terms and condition where they have the right to show your footage because Amazon is creating a almost like a kind of like cops or something, or like maybe even like a America's Funniest Home Videos, where it's Wanda Sykes presenting the the funniest things caught, the strangest things caught on. Um, the Amazon Ring, and it's called like the Ring Showcase or something, and it's coming to Amazon, and they don't have to 
get people's permission because when they hit the wow. terms and conditions, yeah, they hooked all that up. They send their the rights away for for that, and that's horrifying. Like now, people are going to be watching clips of various people's homes and what happens on their property, and they right they didn't really okay it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Interesting. I didn't know about that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, wrapping things up here, um, is there anything that um, maybe was in your notes that maybe we didn't quite get to? Yeah, great question. Um, let me see here, because I do have a handful of notes. We actually honestly talked about a lot of the things that I felt like were uh, the most interesting, relevant things that I wanted to bring up. Um, there are a few movies, though, that I have seen. I have not mentioned them yet that um, just relate to the conversation that uh, I saw recently. Uh, Annihilation is that one that you've seen by chance with uh, um, Natalie Portman? No, I have not. I, I worked at the movie theater when that when that released. OK, but I did not see that. Yeah, no worries. Um, so that came up on a few lists that uh, people felt like it was Lovecraftian and inspired. And uh, I definitely see their point. Um, it, it's okay. You know, I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, and so there's things to take away from it that I thought were uh, a bit interesting. It kind of reminded me of what you said earlier regarding like uh, fungus growing and stuff. There's some things where it's just like very bizarre, strange scenes with like death and stuff. And like, it's it, it really scrambles the brain. There's actually, actually that's probably one of the, my takeaways from it is that there's a number of scenes that like are... Um, you know, just from like a normal, rational human perspective, if that happened in real life, you would be like, what the hell is going on? I have no understanding of what this means. And so it really speaks to um, the psychological nature of interfacing with the mysteries, I guess, the mysteries of the cosmos and seeing something, you know, um, in the flesh, but not having any real understanding of it. And that's one of the takeaways, actually, while researching stuff here uh, for this conversation that I uh, picked up is that, you know, I think one of the reasons why Lovecraft was so effective is that it was the written word. And so he's able to allude to things, but he's not necessarily showing you these things. And even in the movie, The Mouth of uh, Madness, in The Mouth of Madness, um, there is a scene where they're actually reading from this horror book. And it's literally, they only read maybe like a short paragraph or something, but that is actually more horrific than the monsters that they actually showed in the movie. So they actually have this scene where they're reading from a book and then just right after it, they actually show the monsters from that portion of the book. And literally the, the written word and hearing this woman narrate and just uh, uh, read the text, that's more horrific than the actual monsters that they showed. So to me, that's one of the reasons why Lovecraft, I think, is uh, so inspirational to people is that he left it at the written word. He maybe he had sketches of Cthulhu or did stuff like that. I, I don't know about any of that, but clearly his work is mostly just written. And so your imagination fills in the gaps. Your imagination fills in the details, kind of speaking to some of the imaginative, imaginative stuff that we've been talking about. And so I think that's why he was such a big inspiration. Once you decide to show Cthulhu, once you decide to show some of these entities or beings or monstrosities or whatever, 
um, most of the time it's not as effective as what you would have read in his poetry or in his short stories or whatever. So I think that he's such a potent source of inspiration because the written word is actually more terrifying than any monster you could actually design than you could actually create and put on screen or anything else. So I think that that's part of his legacy is that there's, uh, even though I'm not the biggest fan of his actual real work or whatever, um, there's like a timelessness and there's kind of this like sort of classic appeal with just his written word and him alluding to certain themes, him alluding to these monsters. You know, he's not telling you like exactly how they look. He's using language that implies certain things. And so your psychology, your shadow or your subconscious is going to fill in the gaps. And that's more horrific than again, what some uh, movie monster creator is going to, is going to be able to make or what some 3d artist is actually going to be able to make. I think some of my favorite horror films, the monster is alluded to, you know, and maybe they show just a little bit of the monster. They might show them like leaving the room real quick or just like their silhouette, or they might show one portion of the monster or whatever, but whenever they show like the full blown thing and it's actually there and you can see the entire sort of uh, makeup of it, a lot of times the actual horrific element is, is kind of deadened to me a lot of times. I think there's few movies where they really, really put it off, pull it off. Like in 2001, it's a sci-fi movie and there's like aliens, but you never see them. You know, they're always kind of alluded to They're They're, um, they're in the background or they're kind of like uh, operating from a different perspective or whatever. And I think that that's more effective than if they ever would have shown an alien. Um, and so there's certain movies where they'll kind of like talk about the monster or whatever. There's metaphors relating to the monster. And then they show the actual creature later on. And sometimes it just kind of like uh, it loses some of its steam. I liked it better when um, there was just it was more allegory than anything else. And I think that's part of Lovecraft's power is that the way he wrote it, it's still, you know, there's still a resonance today when you, um, when you read some of his words and stuff. So Annihilation, I wanted to bring up. Um, and then also to, uh, I just wanted to read this quote because I think it's relevant to, to the conversation. And so I came across this quote while researching Lovecraft recently. And apparently this came from a book called Supernatural Horror in Literature from 1927. And so um, regarding, uh, regarding the quote, it says, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And so I think that kind of really encapsulates a lot of Lovecraftian sort of themes and stuff is the fear of the unknown. And this is why people have fear, I think, in their daily life too. fear to make changes, fear to go in a certain direction, fear to make certain kinds of commitments or whatever is because they're actually fearful of the unknown. They don't know what's going to happen when they quit their job or end this relationship or move to a different town or whatever it might be. You know what I mean? And so a lot of people, the fear of the unknown keeps them from doing certain things. And I, I kind of agree with this quote that the ultimate fear is the fear of the unknown. And so yeah. um, Lovecraft uses the cosmos and some of these deities, you know, to great effect um, that way with all of that. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I actually, my, the channel that I'm using for Kino Cups used to be my channel 
I started back in college, and I was kind of wanting to do the same thing, but it was it was it was less um, mystical and more just like a, a straight up film channel. And uh, I only did a handful of episodes, and I had recorded it all of it um, in the fall. And so the, the only episodes I actually put out was a series of videos. It was like five, five or six episodes. And each one, was, I went through a different decade of, of horror. Oh, okay. And it was called like Fear of the Unknown. And I, oh. I kind of looked at like, okay, in the 50s, what were they scared of? In the 60s, what were they scared of? Oh, nice. And I went up to the 2000s. Um, it's it's still on YouTube. I have it hidden, so I might make it available to the public sometime. Who knows if I feel like it's worth sharing, um, or I might just try to re-record it with my new thoughts about, about that. Maybe yeah, yeah. Sometime. Um, so I, I I like that quote, and I think that um, there's that there's definitely something to it. Um, no, dude, 100%. Yeah. I'll just say that as I relate it on a more sort of like holistic spiritual level, um, this is why a lot of people don't want to do personal work because they're afraid of what they're going to find. They're they're afraid of some of their um, maybe uh, invisible wounds or or core traumas or whatever and what that might bring out. And so I think that there's, I think a lot of people just have a natural aversion to self because they're afraid of what they're going to find. But uh, to me, the power is in the mysteries that that's kind of one of my main conclusions over the last, however many years now, you know, the power is actually in the mysteries. Uh, you will find light in the darkness, so to say. And so I think that that's why I tend to embrace some of these darker sort of things. I've always really liked gritty, darker music and uh, I actually was not a horror fan for a very long time. It's only been over the last like maybe 10 years or something like that that I start really appreciating horror as like a genre of, of film and everything. But um, I think that there's just something to be said about um, accepting the mysterious aspects of the universe and uh, accepting the mysterious aspects of self uh, versus denying it and versus sweeping it under the rug or pretending like it's not there, or whatever. And so my big thing, I'll, I'll maybe just leave it at this, but, you know, I've done some work about uh, the nature of chaos. And there's a reason why order ab chao is like a concept, order out of chaos, you know. Or uh, I've broken down the phrase, the new world order, right? Whenever you think of order, whenever I think of order, I think of chaos. And so to me, this reality is built on what I refer to as chaos, but I think chaos was just is just another word for like spirit or ether or uh, whatever you want to say. And so to me, the order of this reality, of this domain, all the patterns in the natural world, it came out of the mysteriousness of the cosmos. It came out of the chaos sort of aspect of the cosmos. It came out of ether or whatever you want to say. So they're kind of, I guess what I'm trying to say is like um, order and chaos, it's two sides of the same coin pretty much. You know, so um, a lot of the mysterious, darker things about our reality say a lot about where we live and say a lot about who we actually are and like what actually drives and propels us and whatever. So I would rather have a relationship 
with the darkness. I would rather have a relationship with uh, the mysteries than not, because I actually feel like it's a more holistic approach instead of trying to deny it or pretend like um, you don't, you know, it's not part of you or something like that. It, it absolutely is. It's part of the fabric of, of nature and reality and, and all of that. So, you know, in order to have daylight, we need to have nighttime in order to have spring and summer, we need to have fall and winter, you know, um, it's just part of the natural balance of everything. Yeah. And, um, but also kind of reminds me of what, um, Ben Balderson was getting into during the last weave. He kind of, he broke down the, the light darkness and like bring them back as a whole, like in this very alchemical sense, you know, you know how Balderson talks and it was yeah. very, it was really cool the way he had to work up, which I'm not going to try to reiterate because there's no way I can, um, but it was, it was really powerful. And I, I, yeah. I think you're, you're talking along the same lines, um, which I like. Um, yeah. It, it also kind of reminds me of like um, with the fear of the unknown, like, the scariest thing about ripping off a Band-Aid is thinking about ripping off the Band-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I also agree with you about um, it, it being more scary in horror movies when the monster is, is not shown. Yeah. That's why um, Steven Spielberg, um, his movie Jaws, was so powerful and it mm. stayed in the culture of zeitgeist right versus like all these other shark movies where they sh- actually like showed the shark because the majority of of the jaws first jaws movie you don't see it you might see like a shadow you know or totally. it behind moss or something but like you didn't like physically see it it was it was it was that mystery. Yeah. So exactly. I, I, I think this has been a really great conversation. Um, is there anything you wanted to promote or end on or anything? Right. Yeah. You know what? You're just reminding me. Um, people like to always say uh, his story as is his story, history, his story, uh, mystery, my story. You know what I mean? It's just like we're 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 just as much part of the mysteries as anything else. There's a lot to be said about that. And um, you know, so just thought I would throw that out there. Mystery, my story. But um, as far as promotion goes, uh, if people are interested in my work, they can follow me on YouTube, uh, Symbolic Studies. That's kind of one of my main hubs. The other main hub for me is uh Instagram, so symbolic.studies. And then um, symbolic dot, dot sorry symbolicstudies.com is where they can reach me and find all my other channels and things like that. Um, but yeah, man, I had a really really great time. This is super fun. I love film, you know, and just talking film and everything else. So if you ever want to do it again, just let me know. Yeah, definitely. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks Mario for coming and having this discussion and getting me to it more into Lovecraft because a, a lot of my previous um, involvement in his all his stories and 
anything about him was all like second, a third, fourth hand through mm-hmm. other things that was, you know, in, slightly inspired by him or, or something or, or just references and things like that. So it's been it, very, it's been really interesting diving deep, more deeply into him and everything, everything about him. So thanks again. Um, yeah, and right. see everyone next time on the next episode of King of Cups. <laughs>